This afternoon is 1 Timothy 3, starting at verse 14 and going through chapter 4, verse 16. So 1 Timothy 3, starting at verse 14, the mystery of godliness. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, to the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let us respond to this reading. Psalm 116, stanzas 1, 5, 9, and 10.
Our text for this afternoon's sermon is 1 Timothy 4, verses 8 and 9. We'll read those again. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. After the sermon, we will respond by the singing of hymn 79, stanzas 1, 4, and 5. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Sauron Kierkegaard was a Danish theologian and philosopher who lived during the 19th century. He wrote, and I quote, The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words of the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible, to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, precious scholarship, what would we, what would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. End quote. By nature, this is what we are inclined to, to do with the Bible and its teachings. We obscure truth. We complicate things unnecessarily, or we distract ourselves from the primary goal of, goal of Christian living with far less important things. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says about the Bible, about the Word of God generally, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That can be a scary thought. The Word of God piercing into your soul and discerning exactly what lives in your heart. Yes, the Bible comforts the afflicted, but it also afflicts the comfortable. And so often we would prefer to stay comfortable, so we keep the Bible from coming too close. Just think of how often when listening to a sermon with a particular application, you immediately think of someone else who needs to hear the sermon, rather than examining your own heart. Well, in a sense... This is the issue before us in 1 Timothy 4. The Apostle Paul begins the chapter with a prophetic warning to a young pastor named Timothy. Not about Christian scholarship, but about false teachers. He writes in verses 1 to 3, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons to the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, 
and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Some of what Paul anticipated sounds much like the philosophical school of asceticism. Ascetics, if you know anything about Greek philosophy, promoted lifestyles that were characterized by abstinence, refusing to partake in sensual pleasures. In the Greek worldview, the physical realm was inferior to the spiritual realm. This is why 1 Corinthians 1 says that Greeks viewed the cross as foolishness. The cross is simply a shorthand way of referring to Christ's death and resurrection. The Greeks thought it was absurd that Christians believed in a Christ who would return after death with a physical body. And so came this process in which people adopted frugal and simple lives, renouncing the accumulation of material possessions and the pursuit of physical pleasures, even marriage in some cases. The problem, according to Paul, was that these practices, which appeared noble and pious, were not actually required to follow Christ. Asceticism, as promoted by the false teachers, amounted to putting faith in something other than Christ. It was not rooted in the gospel, but found its basis in a pagan worldview. This is why Paul had such harsh criticism for asceticism. In Colossians 2, verse 18 and 19, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now it's true that our world is dramatically different than the first century world. We have our own secular and pagan philosophies that bleed into the church, that are catechizing our hearts. Some of these even bear a resemblance to the Christian faith. This confronts us with a question. Are we all that different or better? In reality, even today, far too many Christians follow pious-sounding teachings, yet they are not biblical teachings. They are superimposed on the gospel. How often does an adherence to particular teaching, opinion, political ideology, or man-made traditions become the litmus test of orthodoxy and faithfulness? That's kind of what's happening in the letter to the Colossians. Let no one disqualify you because they're puffed up, and they partake in asceticism, and you don't. It's an incredibly dangerous situation for a church to find itself in when other things are superimposed on the gospel. In fact, it amounts to adding to the gospel. Galatians 1, verse 6 to 7, serves as a perennial warning to the church. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. With that in mind, it's no wonder that Paul warns Timothy 
in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, with respect to the false teachers who will arise. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Other translations put it like this. Have nothing to do with godless, worldly, and foolish legends. In other words, Timothy, as a pastor, you cannot take your eye off the ball. Stay the course. Focus on what matters. Focus on Christ. Don't get dragged into secondary or tertiary arguments. Do not allow your ministry, do not allow your flock to become a place where you major in the minors. With that, we come to the doorstep of a third faithful saying in the pastoral epistles. Paul writes in verses 7 to 10, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, unlike the two previous faithful sayings of 1 Timothy 1, verse 15 and 3, verse 1, there is some ambiguity about what the precise saying actually is. Of course, the formulaic phrase is easy enough to identify in verse 9, but it ends with a period. And we're left to try and determine whether the phrase that precedes or follows is the faithful saying worthy of full acceptance. Is the faithful saying verse 10, or is it verse 8? Truth be told, there's even disagreement about, about, among Bible scholars as to whether verse 8 or 10 is the faithful saying. One interpreter concludes, and he isn't alone, that neither alternative can be excluded as impossible. Martin Luther said his particular choice wasn't an exegetical hill he would die on. Having said that, most commentators still agree, and with good reason, that verse 8, or at least the past last part of it, rather than verse 10, is the faithful saying. In the first place, it sounds far more like a proverb or a popular saying than verse 10 does. And in the second place, verse 10 is dependent, grammatically and logically, on verse 8. In fact, verse 10 is simply a further elaboration on why the saying of verse 8 is trustworthy. So what is the actual saying? Verse 8, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In his commentary on the pastoral epistles, J.N.D. Kelly translates the saying like this, while bodily training is beneficial up to a point, Sound religion is beneficial all the way. Now, it's entirely likely that this saying was borrowed from popular culture and subsequently added to a Christian con adapted to a Christian context. One commentator speculates about the possibility that maybe some Greek philosopher originally coined a variation of this ancient proverb for his students when he noticed that athletics was crowding out academics. Maybe one of you can hear one of your teachers or parents saying, you've got to focus more on academics, not just athletics. 
Still, when we consider the immediate context of the opening verses in 1 Timothy 4, it's easy to see why Paul chose to insert this faithful saying at this particular moment in his letter. Christian ascetics, as I've already noted, were improperly obsessed with the physical training of their bodies, self-denial, in order to re find release from the physical world and a deeper experience of spirituality. So there were major doctrinal problems with this. And yet, with this saying, Paul does acknowledge that abstinence and self-control aren't inherently evil. In fact, there be, can be great benefit in developing more self-control. You can just think of how Galatians 5.23 lists self-control among the fruit of the Spirit. A fruit that can be extended broadly to the whole Christian life. Or think of Jesus. He lived a simple, frugal life. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke positively about the spiritual discipline of fasting depriving yourself of food for a period of time and for spiritual purposes. Or Paul himself, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25 to 27, spoke positively about bodily training when he wrote, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Yet bodily training, as the faithful saying states, only holds some value, temporary value. And we should all know this intuitively. Interestingly, in verse 8, the word translated as training is gymnasia in the Greek. Like 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is comparing the spiritual life of the Christian to athletic training. In terms of mere fitness, gymnasia has some value. Of course, it's good to watch your weight. It's good to watch your diet. It's good to exercise regularly. This is part of stewarding the bodies that God has given us. We image him and so we take care of our bodies. But the gymnasia won't be needed when you're six feet underground. The gymnasia won't prevent you from dying. The gymnasia won't help you when you're consoling a grieving person. When you don't know what decisions to make in a difficult situation. Bodily training only has temporary value, perishable value, limited scenario value. And so the issue Paul highlights via this faithful saying is one of a hierarchy of values. For the Christian, the top value in life isn't bodily training. It's not academics. It's growing in godliness. And we can apply this faithful saying to so much of our life, to so many of the things that we value for ourselves, for our families, for our church communities. Raising your child, children well is of some value. Learning to budget and manage finances is of some value. Following certain traditions 
is of some value. Singing certain types of songs in church is of some value. Getting a job is of some value. Getting a good education is of some value. Getting married or remaining single is of some value. Buying a home is of some value. All of these things are temporary. None of these things should be preeminent in the Christian life. Our actions, our words, our schedules, our relationships, even our daydreams have a way of revealing the things we are making preeminent in our lives. So the question is, of all the priorities in our lives, which one should be first? The inspired Apostle Paul says that only godliness should make the top of the list. Godliness should be preeminent. This is what your life, this is what my life should be all about. Because, to requote J.N.D. Kelly, it is beneficial all the way. Godliness in the Greek, Eusebia. What is Eusebia? What is godliness? Well, it's not moralism. It isn't a fixation on moral behavior to the extent that our obedience becomes more important than faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Godliness doesn't obscure grace. Al Mohler observes that this is the problem, the seduction, with Christian moralism or asceticism. We are so easily persuaded into believing that we can actually gain the approval of God by our behavior, by our incremental moral improvement, by our good works. But that's not the gospel. That's moralism, and it's from hell. The words of St. Augustine are helpful. Nothing whatever pertaining to godliness and real holiness can be accomplished without grace. In other words, the pursuit of godliness is one that is empowered by God's grace and the indwelling of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. It is a prayerful pursuit. The pursuit of real godliness is only possible in a person who has already been saved and washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. So what is godliness? One Greek dictionary defines godliness as piety, Reverence, fear of God, awesome respect for God, devoutness. All true, but far more could be said. True Christian godliness is a life of worship. It is life in the spirit. It is trusting, following, and imitating Christ Jesus in every situation. It is the deliberate and unrelenting cultivating and displaying the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Consider how Paul sets his faithful saying up in 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrines that you have followed. So to be godly, to be an effective Christian witness, you and I, like Timothy, are to train ourselves in the word of God, the word of faith, the word of Christ. To reference Kierkegaard again, 
We shouldn't try to defend ourselves against the Bible. We shouldn't try to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. No, we are to be people of the Word. We are people who hold the Word in high esteem and submit to it, even if it hurts, even if it afflicts us in our comfort. We are to be people who are guided and strengthened by the Spirit, who stumble forward by grace alone. Godliness takes sustained and continual effort. The words of D.A. Carson are a helpful observation. People do not drift toward holiness. How much of our life is just drifting? You will not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift, here's where we drift, toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. You will not drift toward godliness. It must be pursued. But pursuing godliness is worth it. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, verse 5 to 11, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So godliness is not work-based salvation. Godliness is lived out of the knowledge that you have been saved by your sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is lived out of the knowledge that the Spirit fills you and empowers you and directs you and guides you and shapes you to look more like Jesus. Godliness holds value right now. It's not just something that we look for on the horizon of eternity, because that's where godliness will really kick in when we get to heaven. It amounts to living eternal life already, in the here and now. Jesus says so in John 10, I have come so that they may have life in abundance. You've been freed from your sins. You've been freed from the passions of this world, following the prince of the ruler of the air. Ephesians 2. You've been freed from a dead-end life. You've been freed to walk with Jesus now. Just think of everything we've been dealing with as a church over the last few years. Think of everything that's going on in the world. 
and the church is trying to be faithful. What value does godliness have in the thick of controversy? How much ink has been spilled on how churches can rebuild and mend broken relationships? How they can restore lost trust? How many friendships and families have been torn apart by division because of an elevating to the status of preeminent the things that only have some value? What's the solution? What's the way forward? It's godliness. That's the solution. Godliness. Philip Ryken puts it this way. Godliness is of value in the home, the church, the marketplace. It is valuable in times of trouble, in times of prosperity. It helps a person deal with enemies as well as friends. Godliness is never superfluous. It guides the believer in every situation. Godliness. That is how we move forward. By grace. Godliness. Growth in godliness. The pursuit of godliness. A laser focus on godliness in Jesus Christ and walking with him. So today, as you hear me speaking, don't think of other people who are in this room. Don't think of people who aren't here. Let the word of God pierce your heart. Examine your life right now. Examine your own heart. Examine your own relationships. Examine your own role. What is the preeminent value in your heart? Who is the preeminent value in your life? Don't complicate things unnecessarily. The matter is quite simple, Kierkegaard says. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we as Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be able to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Godliness. Don't pretend you don't understand. Godliness. That's the way forward. Today we can experience a taste of the life to come by pursuing godliness. Jesus never promised that following him would be easy, but he did say it would be worth it. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him. At the same time, he promises us his grace and his spirit. This is a faithful saying deserving of full acceptance. It means we all have to accept it, not just some of us. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life, our broken situations, and also for the life to come, when we will walk with Jesus in the new heaven and earth forever and ever. Amen.